Hey, everybody. We are moving into the next section in Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This will be on the shorter end of the, the verses that maybe we'll look at um, throughout our study. But in this section, we're going to read Matthew's account of Joseph and Mary, both finding out that Mary is with child, that she is with the Christ child. And looking forward to sharing just some observations with you. And also maybe bringing a new idea to you about prophecy. What is prophecy? Is it predictive prophecy? What's Matthew doing? So looking forward to highlighting this with you. And I'll be reading a short article from a Bible scholar about Matthew's use of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Okay, the virgin will be with child, and she'll have a child, and it'll be called Emmanuel. So, going to highlight that. So, let's read a little bit in Matthew 1. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, notice he's called her husband, they're betrothed, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Hmm. Why, why call him that? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We all can imagine what Joseph was thinking beforehand. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet that we know is Isaiah, but Matthew doesn't say that. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, which is amazing. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, obediently, right? He was told that that was the name, and he obeyed. Okay. So, <clears throat> some things to highlight, and an article to read, which I will post for you guys as well. So, let's just make a couple observations about Mary here, and uh, we are told that um, she would 
have um, the the birth of Jesus. Sorry, Matthew starts in verse eight, 18 by talking about the birth of Jesus. And that word birth is the same word that is tied to Genesis. Okay. It's genesis is the Greek word. Okay. So there you go. So again, I think Matthew wants us to have that book on our brain as we're thinking about this. He's inviting us to think about the Old Testament and just continually, guys, have that remembered as a brushstroke technique for Matthew. So it says that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. You guys probably know that their betrothal process is um, like our engagement process, but there's more of a legal marriage that has already happened between them. It's viewed as if in some ways they are already married. And we don't have that kind of legal concept today, but they did. So that's going to make sense why later it's going to say that he wants to divorce her because of that. Okay. And of course, we want to acknowledge that it says that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, did you have Genesis on the brain? Yeah. Matthew is inviting us to have Genesis on the brain. Well, think really early on in Genesis is the Spirit of God present at the beginning of Genesis. Yeah, I, I think we're supposed to be connecting the dots here, that as the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and going to be bringing life into the world, now the Spirit of God is hovering over Mary and bringing life in her. Guys, there is a new creation that is happening. And I think these are things that we're supposed to be thinking about. Now, it's amazing that Joseph's response to this is what it is. I mean, this, this is a good dude, it seems. He wants to. He's a just man. He, he assumes, understandably, that Mary has been unfaithful to him. And so he wants to uh, divorce her quietly. He is unwilling to put her to shame. It, and I, I think that his righteousness is being upheld here. Um, public shame of infidelity was common at that time, and that's just not the way that Joseph wants to go about things. So his character, I think, is being put on display here. He is unique um, within that time frame. And as he's considering these things, an angel shows up. Remember, you got Genesis on the brain. Does an angel show up about unexpected pre pregnancies in the Old Testament? <laughs> Quite a bit, right? Uh, can you think of the first couple? Ah, you got it. You got it. A bunch of you did. Abraham and Sarah, right? So I, I think their story is supposed to be on our brain, as well as other couples that struggled to have kids, and there was an unexpected pregnancy. I think we're supposed to be thinking about all of them. Now, of course, Joseph and Mary are not struggling to have kids. They're not trying to have kids yet. So that's interesting. So I think 
recognizing that God sends angels to be messengers, some kind of significant pregnancy is happening. And all of those previous stories from the Old Testament and Genesis are connected. Speaking of the Old Testament, I wonder, guys, when it says Joseph, the angel says Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, because actually the kid inside her is from the Spirit. So, son of David, that gets me thinking about our previous passage, the genealogy. Obviously, David is a big deal. Showing Jesus is from that line. And that might be what Matthew is intending here, to just show and emphasize Jesus's royalty. However, I just wonder if we've got a hyperlink to that wife of Uriah reference. So if we think about David and Bathsheba and what went down there, and how that was um, not a righteous situation at all. David acted uh, with immorality. He took Bathsheba and impregnated her, and then Nathan shows up to confront him. David tries to hide it. He tries to keep it a secret. Here, we have quite the opposite. We have an inversion of that story. So I'm wondering if Matthew is trying to hyperlink to the David and Bathsheba story because we have Joseph being told, no, 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 you can take Mary as your wife because what has happened is the child that she has, this is not from immorality that this has happened like it did with David and Bathsheba. This is actually from the Lord and he's going to bring salvation for his people. So I wonder if that's happening there, guys. I'm really intrigued by that. Um, I could be off, but I know that that kind of instinct to connect and hyperlink Old Testament texts is something that I should be doing and thinking about. It says that his name is to be Jesus. And the Greek word Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Yahoshua, which is Joshua, do you hear it? And it means something like God saves. God saves. And of course, saves from what? It's going to save the people, not from the Romans. He's not that kind of Messiah, but from their sins. So that'll be a theme that we'll want to think about. Actually, let's think about one more idea before I get into the article. He's rescuing the people. There's an exile theme. Do you remember? The deportation to Babylon was in the genealogy. And the Messiah was to rescue the people from Babylon. Because actually, the way Matthew frames verse 17 uh, from chapter 1 is that they were still there. They're still in exile. And now there's a Messiah who's going to bring them back. All of this is what the prophets were talking about. Well, let's get, I got nine minutes left. I want to get to verse 23. Matthew says, all this takes place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So, hmm, we know he's quoting Isaiah 7. All right, so let's just go there, and we're going to think about it. Um, what is this? What is this fulfillment? So we got a couple options here. We've got um, what you, you guys probably have often heard. This is a literal future predictive prophecy that is very much talking about Jesus, that when Isaiah said it, he's thinking about Jesus. I, I would like to suggest, I think that's the least likely of, of the options. <laughs> so hear me out. Don't freak out too much. Second option is what uh, a lot of uh, conservative Bible scholars today go with. They're going to say there's a double fulfillment going on. To fulfill, the, the Greek word is plerao, and it can mean to fill up with meaning. And so there was a historical context in Isaiah's time in which it was fulfilled, and then it was fulfilled more or filled up more in Jesus's time. That's going to be what a lot of conservative Christian evangelical scholars go with. Pete Enns is not going to go that way. He's going to go with the hook word approach, which I'll explain uh, as I read his article. So let me read this real quick, and then um, I'll wrap up. So what what is Matthew doing? Maybe he's using the double fulfillment approach, or he's going this route. So let me read Pete Enza's article. And this will be new for you guys a little bit, okay? So again, I'll attach this article, but the way Pete Enns writes is uh, kind of fun. So here we go. Uh, the name of the article is The Pete Ruins Christmas Series Part 3, The Virgin Shall Conceive. <laughs> Everybody just calm down. But here's the deal. That's how he starts the article. Matthew 1, 23 famously cites Isaiah 7, 14. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is understood to be a demonstration of biblical prophecy across the ages that predicts the miraculous conception of Jesus. Luke also refers to Mary conceiving a child by miraculous means. The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, Luke 1, 35, but does not tie it to the Old Testament as Matthew does. That tells us that the circumstances of Jesus' conception are not dependent on whether Matthew's appeal to Isaiah is convincing. So everybody calm down. As the prediction of Jesus, Matthew's use of Isaiah 14 isn't very convincing. Or better, it is convincing. It just depends on what you're looking for. The Greek word for virgin in Matthew 1.23 is parthenos impress your friends, it says, which means more or less a young woman beyond puberty, but who is not yet married. And so one can assume a virgin. No problem so far. Matthew is citing here the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. And the Septuagint's Parthenos is a translation of the Hebrew word Alma. And here's where things get interesting. Alma doesn't mean virgin but a young woman who may or may not be married. It could include virginity, but it doesn't have to. In fact, it would be unusual since Hebrew has a perfectly good and common word 
for virgin, it's Betula. But still, from a linguistic point of view, Alma and Isaiah 7.14 could mean virgin, but contextually it doesn't. It most definitely doesn't. The context of the prophecy in Isaiah, and it is a prophecy, but hold that thought, is the impending invasion of the Assyrian war machine led by King Tiglath-Pileser III in the mid-730s BCE. In a desperate effort to not be annihilated, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Pekah, and his northern neighbor Aram, which is Syria, ruled by King Rezin, decided to form a coalition against the Assyrians, often referred to as the Syro-Ephraimite coalition. Pekah, king of, of Israel, and Rezin, the king of Aram, really wanted the southern kingdom of Judah, ruled by Ahaz, King Ahaz, to join them, but he was reluctant. So they thought they'd attack the southern capital of Jerusalem first to force him to comply. So you got the northern kingdom of, of, the, of Israel attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. Isn't that crazy? Back to the article. Anyway, Ahaz is freaking out at the thought of this attack. And to make a long story short, Isaiah gives Ahaz a sign which has to do with the birth of a son to an Alma, which most translator English translations render correctly as young woman. Some refuse to budge and say virgin, so it's not upset Bible readers who might be cross-referencing Matthew 1.23. But then bury in a footnote, or young woman. The point here is that young woman is correct. Um, the miracle here does not concern the nature of the child's conception, but that the child will be a sign of what will soon come to pass. And here's why we need to read past verse 14. Verses 15 and 16 tell us that the child shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land before the two kings Ahaz, that you're freaking out about, it's going to be deserted. Pekka and Rezin are going to be taken out. So what does that mean? Curds, something dairy, and honey, something nectar, are peacetime foods, not the kinds of things you eat during a siege. And how old would a child have to be to have the capacity to choose good over evil? Good question. If it's my kids, I'd say 30, but... And normally, let's say a few years. The point is that before the child is old enough to make moral choices, the Syro-Ephraimite siege will have come to an end. There will be peace. That is the miracle of the story, not the nature of the birth. If it helps, begin reading Isaiah 7, verse 1. And when you get to verse 14, say, young woman. Then keep reading. It makes perfect sense. You might ask, and you probably should, what's with the name Child's name, Emmanuel, God with us. Doesn't that speak to the miraculous nature of the birth? No. The Hebrew is Immanuel, literally, with us, God. But think of how many people in the Old Testament have sentence names ending with L. Daniel means God is my judge, but that doesn't mean that the man bearing that name is God. There are dozens and dozens of sentences, sentence names in the Bible that end in L. 
but they don't identify the bearer of the name as God. Rather, those names say something about God. So the name of the child, Emmanuel, Emmanuel is reflecting later Latin spelling, is saying something about God, that God is with Ahaz and has nothing to fear. The child's birth to a young woman and his early life is the sign of what God will do. The child isn't the miracle in the story. The deliverance of outnumbered Judah from the coalition is. So is Matthew stupid? Can he read the context as well as we can? Sure he could, but Matthew is engaging here as he normally does. Just track his use of the Old Testament in chapters 1 and 2 alone in the creative interpretation of his Bible, the Greek Septuagint, and tying that story in Isaiah to the birth of Jesus by means of a hook word. Such creative handling of texts, often called midrash, was a common Jewish method of interpretation at the time, and we need to keep in mind that Matthew's gospel is likely aimed at a Jewish readership. We might think, and I hear this often, that such creative interpretation would never have convinced anyone. But that is thinking like a modern Westerner and not an ancient Jew. They wouldn't have batted an eyelash. But more likely, Matthew wasn't trying to convince anyone that Isaiah 7 proves Jesus. He was writing to those who already believed, which included Jews, and such creative connections to Israel's story would have been seen as captivatingly ingenious. So, guys, um, that, I'm wrapping up here, that is a different take, maybe. And it's one that that I find very thought-provoking and interesting about what prophecy is. Um, some of you may not agree with, with Pete Enns. That's fine. But I think I want you to just say, think about the the way that Matthew will continue to employ Old Testament stories and retell them in the life of Jesus. That'll be a significant technique or brushstroke he will be using. And of course, the big idea is God is most definitely with us in and through the Christ child because that Christ child was God. And how thankful we are that God came to rescue us.